Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, I'm joined by John Henry Crosby, founder and president of the Von Hildebrand Project. John Henry is a translator, writer, critic, and cultural entrepreneur focused on making available the works of Dietrich Von Hildebrand in English and advancing awareness of personalist philosophy. John Henry, welcome to the show. Josh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. It is such a pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations. And usually when we talk, we, we get around to talking about philosophy. And I, I know you're a big advocate of personalism. I'm sure we'll get into in just a moment. Uh, but as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was struck by a passage I recently encountered in C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. I don't really always turn to Lewis for personalist philosophy. I mean, he's not Carol Wachtila. He's not Max Shaler. Uh, he's not Dietrich von Hildebrand. He's not one of those folks who really makes the person the central focus of his philosophy. But there was a passage in this book where he had recently been reflecting on his own death. And I was curious, I wanted to get your thoughts on this passage. Uh, here, here's how he puts it. The fruit of this experience, contemplating his own mortality, was that when some years later I met Kant's distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal self, it was more to me than an abstraction. I had tasted it. I had proved that there was a fully conscious I whose connections with the me of introspection were loose and transitory. Well, John Henry, what do you, what do you see in that passage? What kind of leaps out at you from that idea? Well, you know, what leaps out at me is the, um, I, I'm actually reminded of Newman's distinction between real and notional ascent. Um, this, uh, this strong, uh, this distinction between knowledge and a full, full-blooded, concrete, experiential sense versus a more abstract knowledge. And, and of course, you know, the heart of personalism, uh, broadly understood, there is, there is in, the, in a philosophy that emphasizes the, the nature and the dignity of the person and is intrigued by, by, the, by personal life, there's, there's always a great emphasis on, concrete, on, the, on the concrete individual and on the concrete experience of the individual, not necessarily in a relativizing way, but in the sense that there's a recognition of the fact that the individual person um, has their own direct concrete connection with reality and that this is what's necessary for, uh, for real knowledge, for, uh, for deep moral commitments, for deep life of faith, for real human relations. So that's what jumps out at me. You know, uh, it's not maybe the main thing that Lewis is trying to say, but that's what I, what I heard in the vis-a-vis yeah. uh, -vis our conversation about personalism. No, I think that's fascinating because there's a there's certainly a temptation for the philosophically inclined to go to such a level of abstraction that the actual concrete experiences seem to not matter at all. I think that that was something um, Lewis spends a lot of time in uh, Surprised by Joy and also in Abolition of Man. I really try to go back down to that more concrete level and trying to really elevate the importance of the actual experiences that we have as valid as as human beings. Well, yeah, that's right. Let's let's back this up a little bit because we're already kind of getting into getting into it. Uh, I wonder if you could help us with uh, maybe setting up our conversation this way. Um, what exactly is philosophical anthropology, and why on earth does this matter? You know, maybe the place to begin is to say that the uh, the question is a good one. Maybe the term is a bit of a misnomer because philosophical anthropology is a it can give sort of the uh, maybe some of the wrong impressions. Uh, of something more, I mean, we hear human anthropology and we hear sort of a very different discipline. I, I think generally philosophical anthropology is a more European 
often in, in sort of the circle around Carol Wojtyla, for example. I think I think we can safely just speak about the philosophy of the person, the philosophical question of the human person. Uh, maybe maybe the um, you know the underlying uh, reason why people like to sometimes express themselves in terms of the uh, philosophical anthropology, and maybe this gets towards the question that you're raising, is the idea that there's a kind of there's a cohesive account of the human person in philosophical terms, not only in scientific material, neurological, psychological terms, but in a, in a, in a holistic way that looks to the nature of, of the person. And, and so you'll, you'll hear, for example, in Carol Boitiba, the expression, the need for an adequate anthropology. And what's meant there is an account of the person that does justice to the person. And so maybe to the, to the, to the, um, the core, sort of con concern or a core concern about personalism or a way into what personalism is, one can say that personalists as a group, a very loose group, because many of them represent different schools and traditions and so on, but they're, they're very concerned with the, the, the individual person um, being understood in adequate terms, not in reductive terms. There's an anti-reductionism at, at play here. So for example, when you know, economists think of persons as consumers or, or even more nowadays when everything is reducible into data or when you have uh, in the realm of neurobiology, the, the account of the brain becomes so complete and comprehensive that uh, the temptation is that one has arrived at, at uh, an interpretation of a person. And maybe even more generally than that, personalism uh, tends to be uh, opposed to a hyper-rationalization of the person, the person seen principally through the intellect and through his rational powers. And you see this in debates about artificial intelligence. You know, there's a there's sort of this idea that artificial intelligence is going to surpass the person. Well, it might it might surpass in certain respects computational power, but it's not going to surpass an individual person who is much more fundamentally more than their their powers and capacities. So that 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 should give maybe sort of a sense of the different avenues of attack. Uh, by which personalists tend to think about issues and why they're interested in a, a so-called adequate anthropology. I think that's really helpful. I like that term, that frame, phrasing of adequate versus reductive. It, it seems that there is a lot of temptation to reduce the the essence of, hu of hu what it means to be human to really one factor when what you're describing is that if we're going to have an accurate account of what it means to be human, we actually have to keep all of these different factors in mind and sort of balanced against each other. That's and right. I'm thinking of um, conversations I've had with high schoolers that uh, I, I get them in 11th grade philosophy class. They finished 10th grade biology uh, and they're taking 11th grade chemistry when I teach them in philosophy and they are so quick to reduce, I mean, they'll, they'll willingly reduce happiness to a chemical equation mm. or they'll reduce what it means yeah, to, yeah. to a specific yeah. biological uh, understanding. But it seems that we have, we all have this experience that being human is so much more than that. And That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Even if some of these accounts that we get through, for example, if, if, if neurobiology sheds light on the functioning of the brain and we begin to understand uh, more about how the brain supports these experiences, you know, we're very quick to go from, you know, a kind of scientific explanation to the idea that this is really the, the total account of the experiences, you know, I don't know, if you're looking at the experience of love and you're, you know, we can identify centers of the brain and the neurochemistry involved. Well, that, that, there's that leap, that reductive leap 
from that account, it may be necessary, certainly not sufficient uh, sure. in the accounting of the human person. It seems to me that if we have a robust understanding of what a person is, that we can we sort of continually add complexity to our view of the person. If a neurochemist tells me, aha, uh, those feelings, I, the feelings I have for my wife are directly related to this section of the brain and could be stimulated through this process or whatever. Well, that's helpful to know, but it certainly doesn't, that doesn't explain to me why Dante fell head over heels in love with Beatrice or uh, why Shakespeare is able to uh, speak so well, uh, why Shakespeare wrote all of his, his love sonnets and, uh, or the various characters. It doesn't, it doesn't address the complexity, nor does it speak to what does it take for uh, kind of Kierkegaard's vision of uh, love uh, lasting over a lifetime. And That's right. That's but right. It may give us a more accurate understanding of part of our part of the human experience, but it doesn't. None of these seem to be the the totality. That's right. That's right. No, you you you. There, it's not that. I, I think maybe there can be a tendency among uh, philosophers and maybe also theologians of a certain variety who want very much to uphold the the the, the existence of the soul, the spiritual nature of the person, uh, who find themselves they, they they feel somehow threatened by greater understanding of the, the, the physiological nature of the person, particularly uh, in the realm of the brain. But of course, that, the, that does not have to happen. I mean, that, that there's, a, there's a respect in which welcome all of that, in some sense, also recognize precisely what remains irreducible and mysterious about the person, despite our ever-growing knowledge of, of the body. So yes, this anti-reductionism, this, anti this recognition of the, of the complex the uniqueness of persons is a great preoccupation of of just about any personalism. The idea that that a person is you know could be sort of reduced to a a category. So, for example, to speak of an individual substance of a rational nature, which is the classic a classic definition of the person. And of course, definitions are moving at the level of abstraction. So, in one sense, there is a there's a legitimacy there. But the personalist would want to also capture, even in general terms the uniqueness of the person. So they'd want to say that it's a unique and unrepeatable substance of a rational nature and rational understood as richly as possible, not just in a narrow sense of, of, of a kind of computational ability, but also in, the, in terms of the, the, the rational, the way in which the mind penetrates the emotional life of persons. You know, the emotions are seen not just as, as parts of the body, but they're, they're essentially parts of our personal life. So all of that goes into what a personalist would want to factor into their account of human persons. Part of what we're always looking for on the optimistic curmudgeon are ways to kind of see more truth in the world, and particularly to kind of clarify complicated areas where it's easy to be misled or distracted. And so I wonder if you can kind of help situate that. There's a couple that come to my mind pretty quickly. I mean, I think they, and we've already kind of hinted at some of these, A some people tend to view the, the human being in terms of Purely material, a purely materialistic sense. Others kind of get to this sort of purely spiritual doesn't quite get it. I like your phrase hyper rational, but like purely intellect, where being human is all about the life of the mind, and we happen to inhabit these meat sacks, and the, the meat sacks might be interchangeable. And maybe some of the like all the the, the sci-fi movies and books about we can just put these, we can somehow extract the self and put it into a new improved body, and so on. Yeah. Um, in, in what way is personalism trying to really clarify 
a, a particular vision of the person in contrast to maybe other philosophical understandings of what a person is. Or yeah. is. I feel like I keep using the word person in like three or four different ways. Well, that's right. That's right. And you know, one thing that personalists will immediately distinguish or, or try to lend clarity to through distinctions are their basic terms. So for example, the term person is often in our contemporary culture, more or less ex exchangeable for the term individual, right? Mm -hmm. This individual, that individual could, could be a reasonable substitute. You can complete many sentences by using both terms. But of course, that's not the sense in which personalists use the term person. Obviously, a person is an individual being, but it's, it's much more than that. For example, persons want to affirm always the, the relational nature of persons, right? And that's, that's not captured in the idea of an individual, that the, a person is, finds their, their, their fulfillment in, at the level of their nature, to speak in more traditional language in the relations that they form to others, the relations that they come into from the very moment of their being. In a, in a religious context, you would say the relationship to God is established immediately. Certainly the relationship to the mother is established Im immediately. So one has to be careful, as you say, with the, the sort of the inherent ambiguities in, in some of the terms that, that are used. So you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the problematic philosophies that are, that are out there that you might say offer competing visions for the person, but you also said that you're interested in this podcast in you might say finding the truth in in ideas that are out there. In other words, it's a I think that's the meaning of an optimistic curmudgeon. There's plenty to be critical about, but there are there are real truths to be seen. Right. There, there are truths that are I mean there we, we need answers to these questions. I think it's one of the reasons that philosophy never really gets old if you really understand the question. Like we we have we yeah. need to understand what we are and what the nature of the world so that we have any possibility of finding happiness in this life. So there are true answers out there. And part of what I hope to do with this show is talk to people who have great insight in particular areas. And so uh, that that's anyway, that's 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 what we're all about on this show is figuring out like, OK, so what's what's true? And usually it's easier to see what's true in contrast to what's false. So, yes, that's that's true. That's true. It's much more difficult. Often the affirmations of deep truths come in relation to um, identifying and rejecting errors. So th yes, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep, rich history that justifies this approach that we're taking here. So when I think, for example, you mentioned hyper-rationalism, or I mentioned that before. I mean, so that's a, that's a strong tendency in many philosophical accounts. And there are many reasons for that. Sometimes it has to do with a desire to distinguish what separates us from the animals. Sometimes it's a kind of Cartesian vision of the you know the ghost in the machine it's the the person is so reduced the individual person is so reduced to their inner consciousness and subjectivity notwithstanding you know indubitable truths that may or may not be known by the person there's this tendency to see the person as sort of just the self somehow locked inside of this this body and and of course we would cer certainly personalism would would reject many aspects of that vision at least let, let's just say the personalisms that we are talking about here there there might there certainly are maybe strands of personalism that might tend towards that kind of dualism, but the personalism of people like like Hildebrand and um, and Carol Wojtyla, to just name the, the two that that my work is very focused on, are deeply respectful and and aware of the embodied nature of the person. So they they prefer. I mean, sometimes they use the Thomistic language of the um, the soul as the form of the body, meaning that the soul. Is not just the, the the spiritual personal identity, but it is actually the animating principle of the body. It's what gives the body its individuality, its distinctness. You'll also hear in many of these figures they'll they'll speak about 
person as an incarnational being, or the person is incarnated in the body, we all recognize that on the one hand, I am my body, but on the other hand, I'm more than my body, right? We know that experientially. And, and so this, this language of being a body and having a body is sometimes uh, a phrase you'll hear among personalists. On one hand, I am, I am my body. On another hand, I have a certain distance to my body. So in, your, in the, uh, the, the title of the podcast, The Optimistic Curmudgeon, there's a, obviously a focus on um, those things in the ideas and um, in the broader culture that you want to criticize critique and then but there's 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 a recognition that there may be at times truths to be harvested uh even in unlikely places and i think that personalism is a, is is very interesting uh in this respect because uh, be, maybe because maybe at some basic level it's because personalism um tends to be good at sustaining you know apparent contradictions not not literal contradictions it's not relativistic but the fact that we are um uh matter and spirit body and soul, conscious and sort of subconscious, the, the fully conscious and the, uh, the subconscious and on and on. There, there's a lot of mystery in our, in our being. And so personalism, in, it, that, that precisely that non-reductive element that we started our conversation with will lead a good personalist philosopher to not want to sort of explain things out of the picture that are inconvenient for the theory, but to sort of hold them all in, in, in tension. So when I think about the world in which we find ourselves, I mean, there are all sorts of tendencies. They may not always even be schools of thought or clear ideas, but there are certainly tendencies uh, in which the person is inadequately thought of. So, for example, we tend very much to objectify the body. I am myself, my, my consciousness. The body is more an object or a tool. It could be a tool for my, my plans and projects in the world. It can be a tool for seeking pleasure. It can be a tool for a lot of things. And, you know, there are all sorts of ethical implications, too, because people will sometimes say, well, it's not what I do with my body. It's what I it's the intentions that I may have that define my moral character. So, for example, in the sexual sphere that you can imagine how that just opens things up. You know, there's not much that you can't do without, I don't know, consent, maybe. And in the in the personalist account, the body is much more is seen in a much more integral relationship to the person. And I'm putting aside kind of, you know, technical distinctions between body and soul, but, you know, that ordinary experience that we have of, of being a self, a center of um, thinking and willing and wanting and so on, feeling, uh, and then the body that we're, we're all in. And the personalist would want to say, no, the body is, um, the body is not reducible. I'm not reducible to my body. I'm not just a body. I, uh, I am a body, but I also have a body. There's a certain distance between me and my body as well. And that creates, you know, a much more complex picture. You know, the response maybe to Cartesian dualism is not just, you know, a kind of materialist knee-jerk reaction. It's a recognition of the fact that, the, that, that perhaps Descartes did see something, that this whole turn to the subject, as it's often referred to in the history of philosophy, that, that's what defines modernity, right? It's this turn to the subject, the discovery of the, of the personal subject, that this is on the one hand, a problematic account of persons, but it's also a, a, a significant and, and unavoidable account. Personalists, modern personalism really can't be made much sense of without this turn to the subject. Now, they want to integrate that into a more holistic account of the person as embodied in their body, and they want to see the moral life, not just in such a way that the body is sort of the object of what we, whatever we want to do with it, provided we're not hurting anyone or causing injury, but that, you know, what we do with our bodies reflects on our moral being. So that's just one example or, or you know, one, one mode of reflection on embodiment as a, 
uh, something on the one hand that is very problematic in the world. You know, when we think about, for example, the I think the dominant image of the, the human person in the world today has probably shifted from the ghost in the machine of Descartes to perhaps the the, the computer hard drive. Mm-hmm. You know, person is somehow a collection of thoughts, experiences, memories, you know, may, maybe loosely united around some changing malleable subject. And then this is, and this is what sort of, you know, plays into this, you know, uh, this fantastical view, you know, that, you know, human beings are basically the content of the brains. And so we can be downloaded into other brains or uploaded into computer systems, this whole transhumanist movement, which in its extremes, you know, still shocks people, but in its sort of in its impact on the ordinary imagination, we do tend to think in terms of, um, you know, when something is slow and coming, we say it's not on the screen yet. I need to get that into my RAM, you know, so I, I have it present to mind. So, so those are, that would be an example of a, um, you know, another sort of, sort of dominant image or paradigm that personalism would find, you know, probably more fault with than not, and maybe at the same time recognize some very limited truths in it. But that, but that shows you how, you know, ideas about who we are, you know, maybe they flow from or are animated by 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 philosophers and scientists and so on, but a lot of it just has a way of flowing into the culture, and many people end up adopting this self-image without ever having read a, a word of philosophy, right? But these ideas are are informative of the culture. Now, everything you're describing, I think, is is uh, part of why I find personalism so intriguing and fascinating. Because I, I, mean, I think you're right. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of there are plenty of philosophical ideas that sort of float out into pop culture. One I thought of as you were describing the, the kind of RAM and, and the way people think about the, the self as sort of a computer program inside a machine that is the body, that kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with a science fiction show that made lasted two seasons. It was a Joss Whedon show called Dollhouse, but it, it features... I never saw it. Yeah. Uh, not a, uh, I, I love the show, but I'm not going to officially say it's a great show that everyone should like rush out to watch, but it, <laughs> it plays with that sort of idea. And, uh, it, it also, I think, um, uh, ties in something else you were talking about it. It also kind of pushes on the, uh, uh, the pretty evident limits of consent as a, as an ethical principle, because of course there's, I think it's part of where personalism pushes back because if. If every person does have a certain sort of dignity, then I actually cannot ethically consent to the violation of my own dignity. Uh, this is where I think it's yeah. socialism has a strong answer to why is suicide wrong? Why is euthanasia wrong? It, because if consent is our highest good, if it's our highest principle of moral reasoning, well, then there's really no reason I cannot consent to killing myself. Or uh, and, and Dollhouse kind of plays with some of that as a show because the, uh, the the conceit of the show is that there's a uh, an underground business that uh, where if you get in terrible trouble, you can sign up to be a, an employee of this business and you give them five years of your life and you go to sleep and you wake up five years later. What the uh, what actually happens in those five years is that your brain, your personality, yourself is taped onto a disc and they can load you with different traits and personalities and you're rented out to clients for different excursions and so on. Yeah. Now, yeah. That that's fascinating that's fascinating because as a kind of thought experiment maybe it helps us to see the lengths to which you know some of these ideas might go and you know hopefully these are not experiments that are attempted but unfortunately you know to the extent that 
science achieves these things, someone will probably try to achieve them. So who knows? I mean, the, the risk, of course, of a of, of, of a pure sort of literary exploration of these things is that you maybe don't, I mean, maybe some people have some kind of moral reaction, porrents or something like that when they read these things. But the challenge, of course, is that it may be more fascinating than a porrent. And so people may not, right. without some moral right. reflection, see that. But you make a very interesting point, too, about the way in which dignity, you know, tends to work in the modern world. You know, we tend to think of dignity as something that allows us to sort of deflect the claims of others that particularly claims that we claims that violate our freedom and our consent but the idea that our dignity makes claims on ourselves yeah. is probably a foreign concept right because within the, the logic of consent i mean if i you know what's to prevent me from from killing myself or you know committing all sorts of other you you raised it already i mean bodily the, harm the biggest area that i think we see this in today's society is the question of sexual ethics I mean, uh, I think there was a there was a headline yesterday of a, a politician who was found in a uh, BDSM dungeon, and you know, that shocks people. But it shocks people because we do have a still. I would argue it's probably rooted in in uh, a uh, natural law conscience that people still have, whether they would openly admit that or not. But it shocks people to think that a public official would do that. But if your yep. father's reasoning is consent, well, he consented to whatever was being done to him. I mean, that's right. That's right. Yeah, these aren't maybe these are not principled objections. They're maybe like lingering moral feelings right. about what's appropriate. I mean, the like, reality um, is that we're, there's we're another culturally where we don't really those those are really social norms. I think more than they are. Now it depends on the person and also on where you are. Maybe there are more conservative, morally conservative, or religiously committed people in parts of the world. But it's uh, but I agree with you that it certainly the, the the degree to which kind of the standards that we're willing to uphold public officials, they don't encompass much more than consent, because it's hard, you know, in a in the sort of relativistic society that we're in to do that. That's it. I mean, it requires a we have to actually have some sort of agreement, which we currently lack and have lacked for I don't know how long, maybe since uh, since the fall, we have lacked an agreement on uh, the nature of the good and what constitutes a violation. But that might be a good transition point to a different question. I, I think part of sure. um, uh, it, it's I, I consider myself a dabbler in philosophy. I think you do a lot more formal philosophy than I do. But it, it's always seemed to me that there is a strong connection between the philosophical system that someone upholds and the ethical views that they espouse of what's connected to, that seems like ethics, I think, flow from philosophy. What you think people are and the world is and what how purposes work and the nature of metaphysics to material reality and so on, all of that then results in a set of actions. So what does personalism have to say towards questions of ethics and, and right behavior? How does how does personalism yeah. speak into that after if we if we follow you on this idea of each human being is an uh, an unrepeatable rational substance that is that has some quality we're terming dignity? What does that look like in practice? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting and maybe worth underscoring that personalism both as a philosophy and to the extent that personalism is often sort of an inspiring force in in um, social movements or in social thought, tends to take its point of departure in ethics. I think that's not accidental. You know, in other words, when you have this, this, this particularly noble and exalted vision of a human person, there will be consequences in terms of how personalism thinks that person should be treated. I think the other reason that personalism often begins in ethics is because 
often personalism arises out of the perception of particularly grievous evils committed against persons. So when you when you imagine, and, and so for example, there are a lot of 20th century personalism is articulated in the face of totalitarianism and the totalitarian regimes and all of the different forms of depersonalization, um, not just the, the mass killing of people, but the um, discrimination against people, for example, for their religious beliefs or for their race. Uh, and then of course, you, you in today's world, you often hear the expression soft totalitarianism. It's not necessarily the gulag, but there are all sorts of ways in which, you know, one hears the expression, the, the throwaway culture that we live in, you know, that people, persons are discardable. And this is part of what happens when you're a mere consumer, right? Your dignity is not much greater than that. So the so so personalism, you know, um, both responds to cases of depersonalization. It has a very sort of high, sort of highly tuned faculty for detecting forms of depersonalization, both you know the most egregious forms and also the more subtle forms. And on the other hand, it uh, personalism is. It's it's somehow circular or it's a feedback loop, I think, between sort of the perception of, of moral evils committed against persons and, in, and, and by the same token, an ever deepening sensitivity for the dignity of the person. So that, that that's, I guess, how I would address this question of personalist ethics to speak for a moment in slightly more historical terms. I mean, you know, pers personalists will often speak of persons as ends in themselves, which is a phrase that we have from Kant person is an end in himself, never a mere means. That doesn't mean persons can't be means in some respects, never a mere means, right? We can't be reducible to simply the means of, of um, the projects and desires of others. And of course, we shouldn't be, you know, reducible to the, as mere means, even to our own intentions and projects. There, there are ways of not treating ourselves as, as persons either. And so, you know, in philosophical terms, you get, uh, you know, the heritage out of Kant on persons as as ends and not means is very very significant, and lots of issues can be thought through through that lens. It's not the sum total of all ethical principles personalists will will attend to. For example, in that phrasing of Kant, we don't have an explicit account of the uniqueness of persons. Right, a personalist ethics is going to bring together you know a variety of these things. You know, you'll speak of uniqueness. You'll speak of another category would be the idea of subjectivity. Not, not subjectivism, but the idea that the person has an inner life, an inner awareness, an inner space. And a lot of important things happen in that space, right? Even the interpersonal space between persons requires an interior space, certainly in love relationships. And then, you know, personalists are very interested in philosophy of religion. And so the idea that this space is also the, the room in which the encounter between the person and the divine, the human person and the divine takes place. All of those are part of the the account uh, that personalists give. But, you know, you had asked about ethics. And so, you know, I think it's worth simply underscoring that much of personalism in some sense begins in ethical questions, and then it works itself into other areas. You know, when they're, they're personalists are indeed very interested in questions of metaphysics and questions of aesthetics and, and on and on. But, you know, they've, they've taken, there's a kind of point of departure in the recognition of the, the ethical being, the moral being, and the claims that flow from the moral being of persons. Your answer to that reminds me of a, uh, a question that was posed to Russell Kirk once. He had, uh, after he had written The Conservative Mind, someone, uh, I don't know if it was a reporter or a college student, but somebody asked him, so what exactly do conservatives vote for? And he was, Kirk was thrown by that because uh, for him, conservatism was not about a list of policies that he was advocating for. 
Instead, it was more about a disposition and it was working out this sort of disposition of mind in practical terms, but the practical terms were always going to be particular and contextualized. And it, yeah. it did, he, he kind of hated the idea of like, aha, well, to be a conservative means you affirm limited taxes and you only vote for this kind of person. And he thought that was ridiculous. A part of what I'm hearing in your answer is that for and ethics is very, very important for personal philosophy, but it's not as simple as the idea that these eth these actions are necessarily right and these actions are necessarily wrong and we're done, but rather it's a matter of how do we apply these convictions about human dignity and relationality and unrepeatable uniqueness to whatever circumstances arise. So it, it strikes me as like a there's a there's a dynamic ethic there rather than a fixed settled ethic am i is that is that accurate well, it, it, i, I want to affirm the idea of a dynamic ethic in the sense that there's a strong recognition of the fact that ethical experience arises out of you know the concrete experience of life we don't begin with a set of abstract principles but i think you'll be you'll find that most of the great significant personalists certainly out of the european circles you know people like max Scheler and when Hildebrand and, and Carol Vortiba and Romano Bardini and, and on and on and on, that they would affirm, to put it in sort of terms that they probably wouldn't use, but something like exceptionalist norms or universal moral principles of action, you know, that, for example, that, 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 that expression of Kant, that persons uh, are ends in themselves and never mere means. I mean, that, that's a, that's a uh, properly philosophical principle, you might say. Now, how that looks in all of the different permutations of our dealings between persons, that isn't answered, you know, in every instance by the by the principle. I mean, the principle requires a recognition. But on the other hand, you know, uh, I think personalists tend to have a pretty high sensibility for how that ends up looking. So, you know, if they see, they'll see the risk of depersonalization. So, for to, to just to go to be to give a very specific example, you know, like in the in the workplace, a personalism personalism would be very concerned with of course, the dignity of all persons involved, but certainly the dignity of the worker, the employee, and they would recognize that there are inherent risks in the employer-employee relationship. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to say that this is like fundamentally flawed or an impossible relationship or that, I mean, they're not going to take a kind of, you know, collected this turn by any means, but they will recognize that there are risks there and that the employer needs to be sure that you know, he isn't acting in such a way that the employee is completely reduced to their function, right? At, at the deepest level, the employer and the employer are both persons and that their interaction, the interaction between them is the interaction between persons. It's not like personhood can be suspended and that therefore the employer, you know, with an employer with a strong sense of the personhood of, of his employees will treat them differently or will be aware of certain risks and, and tendencies. Does that mean that the employer won't have to make hard decisions? No, but it might mean that they they think differently about those decisions. Maybe they, they draw the employee more into the decision-making process or allow the employee to, you know, in part suggest a solution. So, you know, you can, you can sort of imagine what happens when this, uh, this sense of the dignity and the uniqueness of every person begins to be felt strongly by people. D David Brooks tells a story, I think it's in his book, his most recent book on the which is called The Second mountain it's on my shelf here um somewhere no it's actually at home um but he speaks about and i think it's in that book he speaks about an experience i think of being in, in penn station in new york and having an almost mystical experience you know of suddenly seeing this crowd of people as 
immortal souls, exactly. you know, are as unique individuals. With, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And of course, it's an overwhelming experience. And it's, it's, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, again, that all human relations can always happen at that highest level of interpersonal life, but to realize, you know, very potently in certain moments that, you know, you're always dealing with persons or as C.S. Lewis says in the weight of glory, right? You know, uh, there are, there is no such thing as a mere mortal, right? You're always dealing with future, what does he say? Angels and uh, demons or gods and goddesses. I mean, every person you've ever met is uh, either an eternal God, little G in the making or an eternal devil in the making. Yeah. And if we could see the glory or horror that we are all headed towards, I'm paraphrasing, but he, I think he says, something like it would literally like either one would like literally melt our faces off. And then he's like, and all that. That's right. Yeah. He said, I think you would be, te- he, he would, you would be sorely tempted to fall in worship of the divinized person, human being in heaven. So that, you know, that of course is a, is an eschatological view, view to the, mm-hmm. you know, to the other side as it were. But, you know, the reality is that that, you know, that's the kind, that's the nature of our being and personalists have a very strong sense of that and want to preserve that when they think through even the most prosaic of, you know, issues of fairness and um, sort of the, sort of the daily interactions between human beings. But just to take it, go back to one thing, since you asked about, uh, you mentioned um, human sexuality, maybe in our previous segment, sort of the personalist account of the body. Uh, you know, personalists, you know, I said before that, you know, for the personalist, it's not, I'm not just some self inside of a body in that Cartesian sense. I am my body in one respect. I also have my body. I'm not reducible to my body. So they, they recognize that tension but the body is seen not just as, you know, like even a closely aligned object that happens to be sort of my possession throughout my life. The body is seen as the person and also essentially expressive of the person, right? So the body, and not just in the sense that I can choose to express myself when I smile or I frown. Now, I think personalists want to say that there's something like essential in a smile to joy and happiness that is not essential to a frown, right? And that's, but that's a debate, right? You know, and one can have that debate. Uh, but I don't think you're going to find many personalists who want to say that, you know, uh, a smile is a mere social convention. There might be social elements, you know, to a smile and when, you know, when and how one smiles. But the, the personalist would want to say that in the very structure of our embodiment, particularly in our sexuality, is an indication of our nature. Now it's so fashionable to to, to treat you know, the uh, what we call the uh, the sex of our birth in distinction to our gender. But for a personalist, a personalist can certainly recognize gender dysphoria and, and acknowledge that it's a, a serious, maybe intractable problem in someone's life. But it's that will not lead a personalist to conclude that men and women, as embodied in our male and female bodies, are sort of that this is somehow merely accidental to our nature there's this idea that this reflects our very being and in the uh, in particular in the thought of someone like von Hildebrand and maybe even more so in the thought of of Carol Wojtyla John Paul II there's this there's uh, John Paul II has this this powerful expression the nuptial meaning of the body he, he reads into the very physical physiology and physio well the, let's just say the physical um, and also the psychological experience to the body that that nuptial structure that is to say the the fundamental orientation of man and woman to each other in love and in marriage now that's a, that's of course an account that in our world today requires absolutely a theological foundation you're going to find sure. plenty of sympathetic personalists who want to honor the embodied nature of the person who are not going to go that far 
But it's maybe worth saying in this moment that in many of the personalisms um, that we're talking about here, these are both philosophical and theological accounts. They grow out of religious traditions. And so they draw on those resources. Uh, so in the Christian context, you're drawing on scripture and on the whole tradition of Christian theology. Um, you know, you have something similar in the Jewish world. They're, you know, fairly distinctive Jewish personalisms. So e even if that is not the, um, you know, in every respect, the part of personalism that is most accessible in a kind of public setting, we have, to, I think, I think we would be doing a disservice to our conversation here to sort of pretend that there aren't these, these much stronger, thicker claims about persons and personal life that come out of the context of a Christian or Jewish personalism. I mean, that just takes us back to, I mean, Genesis 1 is very clear that I mean, where God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. And the, the Genesis account does not leave masculinity and femininity out in the realm of accidental features that are changeable. It's right, right. It's, it's the claim of historic Christianity. And I would assume some level of Orthodox Judaism, but I don't know enough about the contemporary landscape of Judaism to well, Same yeah, in Judaism, of course, you've got, you've got, like in Christianity, you've got, very broad arena. You know, among Orthodox Jews, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a strong yeah. acceptance of that Genesis account yeah. and very rich interpretation of that. Uh, that comes is actually very sympathetic, sympathetic to people like Hildebrand and sure. and John Paul II. That strong sense of being embodied. There's, in fact, in, in in Jewish thought, to speak very generally, and I would defer to my Jewish friends here. There's a much uh, much more diminished tendency towards dualism. You know, that's maybe a more, in some sense, there's maybe a greater tendency of that in, in Jewish thought. Um, uh, sorry, in Christian thought to um, to sort of distinguish between the spiritual and the material dimensions of the person. And maybe in Jewish thought, there's a greater integration of those two. But ba basically, the you know, I think one can speak, you know, up to a certain point of a Jewish, a Judeo-Christian account of the body that is richly developed in in personalism and in Christian and in Jewish personalism. So, I mean, but I, I think that's, that's, just, that's a fascinating view of really uphold the body and to uphold uh, masculinity and femininity as essential rather than accidental. So I think the, I, our, we, we've moved, culture today has moved so fast. I mean, from yeah. uh, just even over the last six years from 2015 with the Obergefell decision to 2021, uh, I mean, the, the transgender movement has moved at lightning speed to yeah. seemingly become normalized in American society. But I think that's a very, but it, it upholds this idea that it is, that it, those are very accidental. I appreciate the way you kind of phrase that, uh, I mean, gender dysphoria, so if I heard you correctly, but you would recognize and the personalist you're referring to would recognize gender dysphoria as a disorder, as a, as a, as a sickness of the mind in some way? Well, I think yes. And I think many of them would argue for it. And, and I say that because I think, first of all, many of the classic persons, this, this wasn't an issue remotely on their minds. I mean, it would have been more sort of tendencies to commodify the body and so on that animated Hildebrand and Moitiba and others. So, you know, we're, we're in a whole new world with transgenderism and transhumanism and so on. But I, I think it, it absolutely flows from the kind of basic principles and commitments that they have to the embodied nature of the person and the whole account of sexuality um, in, in those personalist thinkers that they would, they would view gender dysphoria as a, a kind of... Um, so I think they would differ in the sense that there may be 
a tendency sometimes for people to explain away people. In other words, Christians who want to affirm, you know, the biblical account of uh, uh, male and female sexuality, perhaps are tempted to just explain away or find other explanations for what gender dysphoria claims to be. And I think among many personalists, because of this, there's a strong phenomenological bent. They don't want to just pretend that certain things aren't there. They would say, no, this is this this can be very much an experience that people have. And and of course they would they would but they would consider it uh, an experience that flows somehow out of an account of human brokenness. And now what what they would you know the, how they would go about healing and resolving you know uh, problems of gender dysphoria. I think it's not entirely clear to me because it's not clear to me what you know whether there's a consistent personalist account. Yet I know I know of personalists who are thinking and writing about this, but it's it's perhaps more you know, somehow emerging. But I'm just trying to sort of give a sense of the fact that two things. Number one, the kind of core personalist principles around embodiment would, I think, you know, almost require someone to see gender dysphoria as not just some neutral fact that we can work with. And then we're just going to sort of let people, you know, uh, decide what they're going to be in terms of their, uh, the gender that they want reflected in their body. And then the you know, the gender roles that they want to carry out. But on the other hand, I think that it's still, um, it's still a field where it will be very interesting to see how personalists argue for and think about, you know, the issues like gender uh, dysphoria. I think also sort of transhumanism broadly, these questions of the body and the, um, I know I have friends who are thinking about, you know, this sort of this image of the body as a kind of, of the person as a computer, and you know, how this affects our thinking about our, ourselves. So, but all of it at the end of the day, you know, is really rooted in, you know, let's call it the um, the incarnational personalism that we get in our personalist thinkers. And it's maybe a matter of working out how those sort of core insights and principles, you know, allow us to address these very current issues that are, that are ongoing. I, mean, I think it's the, it's, the, it's the cutting edge right now of like where, where people are trying to figure out what is, I mean, what, what literally exists, what is reality, what is reality, what is, where is reality, where is experience, and are those, do those align, or are they, do they differ from each other? I think you've given us some helpful thoughts to, to think about that, and I think one of the, I mean, the, all throughout this conversation, I've, um, it occurs to me that, I mean, I think part of what personalism upholds is some of the most interesting things that are not destructive in postmodern thought, in terms of a, postmodern appreciation of mystery, a recognition of the limitation of how much we know and even how much we can know, a respect for the subjectivity of human experience. But also personalism seems to hold where where postmodern thinkers tend to cut off uh, the tradition, the the Western canon, what what C.S. Lewis called the Tao. Personalism seems to do both. It's like, okay, we're going to respect the fact that there are all of these things that Descartes and Hume were probably wrong about. Immanuel Kant got these things right, but he was wrong about these things, and yet also cling tightly to Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas and all the rest, and kind of bring all of that to the present to attempt to articulate, this is what it means to be human. So I, I, I think personalism is a fascinating way of kind of thinking through philosophy in the, in the present day. I appreciate your willingness to uh, come think on the, on the show with us about all of this today. Well, I think you're, you're I think that's a very, very good summary of, of um, some key personalist categories, ideas. 
and the, the respect in which personalism is both able to, um, well, let's just say personalism, given its uh, its basic commitments, is is capable, as you say, of makes itself amenable, so to speak, to, um, you know, I mean, we don't generally think of postmodernism, for example, as all that compatible with traditional views, but to the extent that it, it, it forces a deepening or it, it reminds us, for example, to the extent that there's an anti-rationalism that it wants to resist. And you have this, of course, in, in Nietzsche and others, right? This idea that, you know, we can know everything. There's a strong pushing back against that. And of course, that, that comes very close to, you know, the best Christian sensibilities about the reality of mystery and the mysteriousness of God and the, uh, and the world of revelation and, and also the mysteriousness of every human person. You know, the, the fact that human persons are in some sense inexhaustible is something that personalism is very attuned to. And so, yeah, so it makes for sort of unusual and interesting alliances, intellectually speaking, because there's a deep rootedness and respect for the tradition. It's very McIntyrean in that sense. You know, personalism is very much in debate with its own past all the way to the beginning. And at the same time, personalism is, at least in its in, in the form that it takes today and the thinkers that we have identified as as important personalists, that personalism is, is, is inseparable from, you know, being a, an expression, a philosophical and even an expression of the imagination that is that is also distinctively modern. You know, there's you, you can't just sort of apply the label personalism to even our own earlier chapters and say they say that these earlier chapters say everything that a contemporary personalist would want to say and affirm. You know, you do need the resources, modernity. But you also need, you know, much thicker resources around metaphysics and anthropology and theology uh, than you often have in in the present. So I think, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, personalism is, uh, I'll appeal here to Van Hildebrand, who, uh, one of his sort of ongoing critiques in general of the history of philosophy is the excessive tendency to systemization. You know, we need a comprehensive total system. And of course, to the extent that reality is ordered and structured and even teleological, if you want to go that far, and I think you know, Hildebrand would certainly recognize the idea of real natures at work in the world, then you, if, if you recognize that, then you're going to, there's going to be a tremendous structural dimension to reality. But personalism, on the other hand, is quite willing to accept reality as given. And, you know, not not everything is reducible to system or in the end, you need multiple systems. Um, so in that sense, personalism is very and that goes back to the to the beginning of the conversation. Personalism is not reductive. It does not want to explain away or reduce to simpler principles. But the what experience and not just my experience, but human experience in a richer way gives us. So, yeah, no, I'm I, I, I'm personally, as you can imagine, quite convinced that personalism is a is a crucial and indispensable voice today. And I'm delighted that you've given me the chance to get together and chat with you about it and look forward to um, many more conversations uh, in the future, as I know you and I will continue to continue to talk. I, I am confident we will. I was thinking in a, in a world where it seems like decisions are consistently made and trumpeted through utilitarian approaches, through policy concerns that are about achieving some specific goal, in the absence of considering who the people are who are going to be affected by that policy, or a, a, a world that seems convinced that human nature is infinitely permeable. Uh, I find it very refreshing to uh, spend an hour thinking about how do we study reality and how do we 
try and grasp the complete totality of what it means to be human. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, John Henry, as we wrap up today, where can people find and follow your work online? Well, they can uh, come to our website, hildebrandproject.org, which is the, um, and there's a new website to come, which will be even substantially more representative of our work. So uh, that will be coming probably more in the fall of 2021. Um, they can also follow us on social media. Facebook is probably the main place where uh, they can find our, our videos of all of our summer seminars and many of our public events, lectures, book launches, and so on. Um, and for those who are inclined to do a little bit of reading in, in Van Hildebrand uh, or in this personalist tradition, uh, during COVID, we began and will retain a program of online reading groups, which people are welcome to. They're always ongoing um, and on different books and at different levels, and uh, they're simply open to anyone who's interested. Uh, so if people are interested in that, they can find out about that on our website. And so someone who wanted to read a particular book by Van Hildebrand or one of our distinguished personalist authors would have a chance to do it. And th these are all guided by associated scholars of the Hildebrand Project. So they're, uh, they're not, by that I don't mean to say they're advanced, but they're led by people who really know the books uh, and can lead a good discussion. So I invite your listeners to uh, sample all of those, those good things. And um, I don't know when your episode will air, but we are uh, weeks away from our 11th annual summer seminar, which will be virtual, which is open access. Uh, people just go to our website. And if, of course, if this episode airs after uh, July 5th through 9th, then they can access all of that archived on the on the on our website, uh, and particularly on our YouTube channel. I should have mentioned that all of our video is on our YouTube channel. So that's a lot of answers. Basically, go to our website, go to Facebook. There's a lot of stuff Excellent. there for people interested in personalism. So that's the hildebrandproject.org and people can find everything there, links to all of the pages and can find all kinds of information. That's fantastic. John Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show today to uh, talk with me about personalism and uh, hopefully a, an optimistic view of, of human nature. Thank you listeners for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful. <laughs>